Hi, it's Jeff from the podcast. I wanted to take just one moment and tell you about a podcast that I think you will enjoy and want to check out. Fire Breathing Kittens is an actual play one-shot podcast that plays various tabletop role-playing games with a season-long plot. Because there's a beginning and end to each week's story, you can start at any episode. Every week has a different combination of four from the same rotating cast group of people. Join fire-breathing kittens as they solve detective mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. That's fire-breathing kittens wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check it out today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Shannon Chakraborty author of the new novel, The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi. Shannon is the author of the critically acclaimed and internationally best-selling The Devabad Trilogy. Her work has been translated into over a dozen languages and nominated for the Hugo, Locus, World Fantasy, Crawford, and Astounding Awards. R.F. Kuang wrote about her latest novel, a thrilling, transportive adventure that is everything promised. Chakraborty's storytelling is fantasy at its best. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your latest novel, The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi, how would you describe the novel? I originally pitched The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi as essentially Sinbad the Sailor meets Ocean's Eleven. Um, It is a historical fantasy that takes place in the 12th century Indian Ocean, and it is about a rather unhappily retired (laughs) pirate um, who gets pulled back into the game when she finds out, I don't want to give away the whole story, but she finds out the the daughter of one of her late comrades has been kidnapped and she's being tasked with returning this person um, who happens to come from a very wealthy family in the hopes that she'll get to have that one last adventure with her old crew, um, as well as make it meet some of money. As things often work out in fantasy and in anything where you think, oh, just this one last time, um, it turns out the job is a lot more complicated than she expects. And she comes to the attention of an ex-crusader who has gone to the region in search of magical artifacts and Amina herself. And she finds out, essentially, in order to... Save her own family. She has to return to a world and to the to ma- the magic that she always denied um, to sort of figure everything out at the end. It was meant to be just a very adventurous, uh, swashbuckling pirate tale um, in the sort of vein of Pirates of the Caribbean. But it also uh, um, was meant to be a love letter to a lot of the old Islamic travelogues and stories and, and fables and fantasies um, that I, as a history nerd, have always loved. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the novel? You know, it was the idea. Strangely enough, it was a mix of the adventure part. I wanted to kind of, I I, I love the Sinbad tales. Um, I think in, in the West, they've gotten kind of, they've gotten mistranslated as this. He is seen as this swashbuckling adventure and a sailor um, and almost like a superhero. But if you go back to the original tales, they're great because essentially he is a man who has the worst case of FOMO that has ever been seen. He goes out, he has his adventure. It, you know, it ends terribly or not ends terribly, but it's this terribly stressful ordeal. He swears to God, I'm never going to do this again. I've learned my lesson, goes home, 
gets itchy feet. Well, what if I just took one more trip? Goes out, has another horribly perilous time, gets everybody killed. You know, he it's this period where he just goes back and forth about he just kind of can't give up that adventurous life. And I just really loved um, you know, it's one of those times where history kind of just comes back and touches you because of course so many of us know that feeling as well of like, I I want something that is probably not good for me, or the idea when you're getting, you know, more advanced in life, you know, have I what have I done? What more would I have wanted to do? So I wanted to play with that idea. Um, and I really wanted to play with elements of parenthood. When I first started conceiving of the story, um, I was a very new mother and I was querying the Devabad trilogy. And it felt, you know, I wasn't having any luck with it. And it felt almost selfish to take any time for myself to either write this new book, um, investigate anything about writing and publishing. It felt like, you know, I should have been home. I should have been doing doing stuff for my child, stuff for my husband. So it was it ended up being this sort of, you know, ode to what do we expect of mothers? Um, how do you balance wanting to have a life for yourself with your duties to your family? So it was sort of these some very serious <laughs> issues then crossed with adventure. And that was really what the story um, took root in can take a step back and and talk about what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Um, I often tell people that I more fell into publishing <laughs> than anything. Um, I, I've always been a fantasy fan. I've always been a history fan, um, but I wanted to be a historian. I actually originally wanted to go and do PhD work in the medieval Indian Ocean and Islamic world. And I graduated into a recession <laughs> and quite frankly, got the first job I could do that would keep a roof over my head for several years, which was um, working in a medical office. And I would go home and I would sort of play in this fantastical world that I invented looking at the idea of kingdoms of jinn. And, you know, uh, I to kind of backtrack, um, the traditional idea of jinn is not so much, you know, the big blue Disney guy, mm -hmm. but that there is this race of beings that live unseen amongst us. Um, they're from created from smokeless fire. They have incredibly long lives. They've said to have powers. They are everywhere, in, not even just Islamic um, folktales, but a lot of other related cultures have similar stories of these these beings. And they're sort of, you know, they're, they're either the tricksters or the villains or this other, this very other creature that lives alongside us. And I always thought that was just a fascinating idea because if we're sent, they live alongside us and they have these incredibly long, powerful lives. And as a history fan, what have they seen? You know, what have would they have taken from human civilization, their interactions and their observations to build a world of their own? So I started just building out this world of the jinn, um, starting from what human tales said about them and kind of using that as a springboard. And it was something I just worked on for years. I would set short stories in it, and it started evolving this history of, of a royal family of healers versus a, fam versus a family that had very different beliefs, more shaped in their interactions with humans. And I worked on it for years, and it was something, you know, I joined a writing group because I felt like I should. <laughs> and, you know, they encouraged me to shape it. And, you know, my husband, who is also a huge fantasy fan, started reading it and was like, I think this is really good. You should try to do something with this. And essentially, you know, my family and friends and loved ones kind of just kept pushing me. They're like, do you know, go find an agent, you know, do this, do that. And I started, you know, taking it a bit more seriously. And 
queried and <laughs> yes, got an Asian into auction after many, many years, probably uh, a full decade of working on this and just assuming no one would ever want to read it. Uh, people apparently wanted to read it. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm here uh, working on my next series after the other one thankfully did quite well. And, and, and of course, the people who are self-directed and, and just intent on getting published are listening to this and gritting their teeth. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. And I think these were even some elements that I had worked in in the book. I just, I guess I'm an internal pessimist and I just never even let myself hope that it would go well. Um, I mean, I think we'll probably get into this later in the chat, but it, publishing has not been the most welcome um, environment for fantasy stories that are set outside Europe, let alone fantasy stories that are incredibly informed <laughs> by Islamic history uh, 10 years ago. So I just, you know, I worked hard on it and I, I you know, especially when, when we got to querying and I was kind of like in the trenches and learning how to do all these things, but I really just never let myself hope, which is not, probably not the, the inspiration I want to give to aspiring writers. Um, but it did feel like, you know, it was, it was one of those things that just, I was like, this is never going to happen until it actually did. That's great. Well, you did mention, um, and you know, as many people know, fantasy literature in the U S for years, uh, the, the vast majority, I mean, there, there are, you know, a few examples here and there, but the vast majority reflected a very European setting and, and point of view. What has your experience been? Um, as a writer and creator and, and bringing a new setting and new point of view to your fantasy novels, as you mentioned earlier, um, Islamic history, et cetera. Did, did you face any challenges or pushback along the way? You know, I have, and it's, it's interesting because I think I like to take a wider eye view of this problem because it's essentially something that has been created, of course, by publishing and marketing in the last, I mean, we want to, we, we look back at it, oh, we think, oh, my lifetime, but, you know, the idea of fairy tales, especially if you, if you really go back to it, the influence of Islamic and Arabic culture on European fairy tales can't even be overstated. Um, if you talk about, you know, starting in from the 17th century, um, it's just been this, you know, these past few decades in the U.S. market that we sort of so have come to associate fantasy with just these European medieval tales. But those stories have always been there. Um, writers have always been creating them and telling them. I I can list a lot of different stories and books and tales um, from the Islamic world, from diaspora creators that were being written in those same periods of time. It's just kind of where the actual marketing and publishing dollars went. And I think we're really seeing just an incredible explosion of new voices and new books. So it has been um, great on in one hand to see so many new voices coming out that it almost, you know, I tell people a lot of times when I, I do a lot of mentoring in the Muslim writing community, and I kind of, you you expect challenges, but at the same time, they're, you know, it's almost like they people have their own biases they have to deal with. Like, kind of don't take your eye off the prize or even center those ideas over your own. We, everyone has the right to tell their story and to tell it without, you know, being like, oh, I have to explain my culture or my history to people who aren't familiar of it. Center yourself and center your voices and, and what you're trying to say and let people come to it. And yes, you'll get, you will get obnoxious comments. You will, there will be times where you'll say, I think my books would have been on that list if not for this, if not for this. And it's, you kind of just have to keep pushing through that because they, it is a 
very socially contrived situation um, that we have those books that are popular. And then, of course, that feeds into it. So, But don't don't let it influence your writing or feel like you, you can't do what you're doing because you're never going to get to that place. It's something that I think you kind of, you have your expectations and you know that's going to come, those hardships are going to come, but it shouldn't knock anybody out of contention. I'm curious about your writing process when you're working on a novel or a short story. Do you outline extensively or... Uh, do you just dive into the narrative to see where it takes you? I dive in, um, which I is has been a strange process in learning my own creative process. Learning my own creative process has been its own adventure because I'm otherwise in life very much a plotter. I've got about <laughs> ten different to do lists. Everything is organized. I like my schedule to be figured out and have everything in its place. Um, but when it comes to writing stories, I am not that way at all. I tend to have goalposts of, I have a, a vague idea of what I want the character arc to be. I have certain points, oh, I would like this to happen. I would like this to be, you know, sort of those, if you kind of plot out an action thing of what is the inciting incident, what are they working for, what are their setbacks, where do you want it to end? So I try to have loose goals and then almost let the story just unravel naturally towards those. And if it seems like a character arc or a plot arc is going away from that, I very much believe in chasing that down rather than trying to fit a previously decided goal or outline. I think you just get more organic stories. Um, and really the way I do that, because that can be very overwhelming, um, is I try to write quite loosely. Um, you know, I write the draft and I, if I'm getting stuck, I try to just either move on. I, I'm a big believer in when you get stuck writing what you're trying to do, what is making, what is getting you stuck, different sort of ideas, just write out your notes in the manuscript to yourself, mm -hmm. um, or forcing yourself to make, okay, I have, I could, character A could do one of, or two options. We'll just force yourself to, to commit to one at a certain point keep writing, see how it's going, um, and just kind of like doing that process over and over again, then reading what that skeleton draft is and trying to pick out, okay, what are the parts that are working? What are the parts that aren't working? And just really fleshing it out over and over again, um, rather than sticking to an outline or sticking to the scene that I'm writing, the prose and everything about it has to be perfect in just the, the uh, first couple passes. Let it be terrible if being terrible means you can continue on with the story to see where you're going next. That sounds great. So almost like a choose your own adventure. Sounds like. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is great. terrifying. And it took me, it took me several books to kind of gain that confidence that, you know, you, I, I'm a believer in, in this. And again, all writing is objective and everybody has their own process, right. but it, it has been very much my experience for my own writing that it is terrifying. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how this is going to work that in the editing, this will come to me and I usually love it. And it's, it's, ex it's exciting and exhilarating. It's kind of, um, very much not the way I usually <laughs> approach life of just like hoping inspiration strikes. Um, but I think there's almost some magic in it. And when you kind of can capture that, um, that to me is is truly one of the joys of creating. That's interesting. I actually interviewed um, Jane Ann Krentz earlier this week. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's been writing for years and years, um, mainly in um, paranormal suspense. Uh -huh. But she, she talked about, um, and she's had like 
like literally over 30 New York Times bestsellers, but she talked about um, something very similar. So she said oftentimes she will be writing and then, you know, have kind of profound ideas three-fourths of the way through the novel that she then kind of has to go back from the beginning and kind of weave in um, as she's kind of building along the way. Yes, I, I very much agree. And it's ironic because it almost sounds like a stereotype, like, oh, I'll be in the shower and a wonderful idea will hit me. Uh, but I have often <laughs> been in the shower and a wonderful <laughs> idea will hit me. Um, and I always feel like those are often the strongest parts of my plots and my character arcs are the things, those profound inspirations. Got it. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? You know, similar to, on a very similar vein, I very much recommend finding techniques to get yourself unstuck. And that sounds like something easier said than done. But I, I, when people talk about, oh, I have writer's block or, oh, I can't, you know, I'm just not inspired anymore to sit down, try to find out what does inspire you to sit down. And if it means leaving that scene or that first chapter, I always tell people to try to just push past those first chapters. I know everybody wants to just get them perfect and polished and then they'll move on. Push past them because it's very difficult to see the entire narrative of a story from those first few chapters. Um, Especially you may end up completely rewriting them once you realize you're going in a different direction. So finding ways to get yourself unstuck, whether that means saying in the manuscript, I am stuck. Here's why I'm stuck. I would like to do these couple things, but for now I'm going to move on. Moving on to a new scene that does kind of spark that joy or that you've wanted to work on, even if it's not, it doesn't take place chronologically after what you're working on. Just finding ways to shake things up. Writing from a new character point of view that you don't even anticipate being in the book. Just, again, trying to find ways to kind of shake up your writing routine and get yourself to sit down. I mean, we all know writing is very difficult. It's publishing <laughs> publishing in the year 2000 of the beginning of week of 2023. It's, it's a dismal sight. I mean, more often than not, it does feel like it revolves around luck. And you can be, we all have those books we have worked on for decades and that will never see the light of day. So I think there's you have to kind of come to terms with that and think to yourself, if this doesn't go where I want it to go, did I d- still enjoy the process? Did I, you know, was it worth it to either, you know, wake up before the kids go to school or stay up till midnight after your family is is asleep and, you know, you're working two jobs and maybe you have an hour a week to go to Starbucks and type out some some words Make it a joy um, because you don't want to just have it be another slog all of the time. That's that's the quickest way to just completely sap your inspiration. So finding ways to just kind of break out of that, um, even if it means working on something different, working on a different part, working on an entirely different book. Find ways that you can still kind of have that joy in putting together words. That's great advice. Are you working on a new novel now? I am. I am working on both the sequel to The Adventures of Minal Sarafi, which is a sequel, but also sort of a different adventure. I wanted these books to have a slightly more standalone feel. Um, and even with that, I'm also toying with a different uh, wor- a secondary world this time, just because I felt like I also needed um, to kind of have something in my back pocket that was more writing for me. And of course, writing that I eventually want to show people. But I, I have those two projects that I'm working on. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? 
you know, I've been reading a lot lately. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, my, uh, I have some um, health issues going on with my family, which is not great. But because I've been spending so much time in waiting rooms, I've been kind of getting through a few different things. And I, I typically like to have both a fiction and a nonfiction that I'm reading. Um, Fiction-wise, I have really enjoyed three books that are actually coming out just in the next few weeks, I believe. Um, which one was a fantasy, God Killer by Hannah Kanner. Um, which was just really, they they pitched it as The Witcher um, inspired, and it was just a really fascinating adventure tale set in that did very interesting things with spirit, spirituality and faith um, in a fantasy setting that I thought were was very interesting. And it just had a great cast of characters. Um, Fonda Lee, who is one of my favorite authors, has a novella coming out, The Untethered Sky, which is set in sort of a Central Asian-inspired world um, about a girl who has essentially is a has a very large falcon, as <laughs> cool say, and these you know these monsters that they used to hunt, and I thought was a really interesting um, relationship between you know this this animal, this incredibly you can't even call them an animal; they're like the size of a truck. Um, but it was just a very interesting world. And then um, uh, Roshni Chakshi's The Last Tale of the Flower Bride is coming out, in, I believe, on Valentine's Day, ironically enough, which is just a really great adult fairy tale retelling. Um, and then nonfiction, which is my other passion I like to recommend to people. Um, I've been reading uh, The Fairy Tellers by Nicholas Juber, which is a history of fantasy and fairy tales and the people who tell them. And I think is a great read for anybody who works in fantasy and science fiction because you're kind of reading about your predecessors and how they put together stories and their lives. And it's it's just very joyful and interesting. Um, it's one of those books that makes you realize, you know, we all of us in our cultures that we tend to think are more set off. Um, we really are so much more inspired by each other stories and and histories than we could ever realize. Um, and then just another one I've been working on is Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, which is diving into sort of the historical roots of a lot of myths and historical curiosities, uh, which is, has also been very interesting. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? I am mostly on Instagram these days at S.A. Chakra Books, um, S-A-C-H-A-K-R-A-B-O-O-K-S. I, I have a Twitter presence, but it's more for updates. Um, Instagram tends to be the place I go. I like to um, kind of share what I'm reading and give short reviews as well as also talk about historical nonsense that I'm obsessed with. Then <laughs> share cat pictures. So that's the best place to find me. I have a newsletter as well. Um, which you can find the links to on my website or any of my social media pages. But Instagram is where I'm usually at. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Shannon Chakraborty, author of the new novel, The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Shannon, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. God as my witness. None of this would have ever happened if it were not for those two fools back in Salala. Them and their map. What? What do you mean that is not how you start a story? A biography? <laughs> you wish for a biography? Who do you think you're chronicling? The Grand Mufti of Mecca? My people do not wax poetic about lineage like yours do. We are not even true Serafis. My father's father, an orphan-turned-pirate from Oman, simply found the name romantic. 
Don't you think so? <sighs> As I was saying, the idiots and their map. Now, I understand the appeal of treasure hunting. I do. After all, we build our homes upon the ruins of lost cities and sail our ships over the drowned palaces of forgotten kings. Everyone has heard a tale of how so-and-so dug up a jar of Sasanian coins while sowing his fields, or met a pearl diver who glimpsed hordes of emeralds glittering on the seabed. It was related to me that in Egypt, treasure hunting is so popular, its participants have organized into professional guilds, each holding their particular tricks close. Though, for the right price, someone might be willing to give you some advice. They may even offer to sell you a map, a guide to such fortunes you could scarcely imagine. The maps are, and I cannot emphasize this enough, remarkably easy to forge. I can even tell you how it's done. You merely need a scrap of parchment and a bit of time. Tonics are applied to darken and yellow the paper, though, regrettably, the majority require urine, and the best derive from the bile of a bat. The map itself should be drawn with care, with enough details that some geographic locations will be recognizable, ideally directing the mark in the opposite direction of which the mapmaker intends to flee. Symbols can be lifted from any number of alphabets. Many forgers prefer Hebrew for its mystical connotations, but in my opinion, the text off an old Sabaean tomb makes for more mysterious letters. Wrinkle the whole thing up, fray the edges, burn a few holes, apply a thin layer of sandarac to fade the script, and that is that. Your treasure map is ready to be sold to the highest bidder. The map my clients possessed that night did not look like it had been sold to the highest bidder. Though they had been trying to conceal the document, along with their purpose, as though midnight excursions to ancient ruins were a common request, a glimpse had been enough to reveal the map was of middling work, perhaps the practice manuscript of an earnest criminal youngster. But I kept such opinions to myself. That they had hired me to row them out here was a blessing, a chance job I had snagged while fishing. I must have seemed a prime candidate for their mission. A lone local woman, a bit long in the tooth and almost certainly too dim to care what they were doing. I made the appropriate noises, warning them that the ruins were said to be haunted by ghouls and the surrounding lagoon cursed by jinn. But the young men assured me they could handle themselves. And as I had spent many a night fishing in the area without encountering even a whiff of the supernatural, I was not truly concerned. Excuse me? That seems sort of naive. Do you not recall how we met, hypocrite? Stop talking and eat your stew. The salta is excellent here, and you are barely thicker than that pen you're holding. Another interruption, Jamal, and you can find some other Nahuda to harass for stories. Anyway, back to that night. It was an otherwise enchanting evening. The stars were out, a rare sight during the Kharif, the summer monsoon that typically mires us in fog. The moon shone brightly upon the ruined fort across the lagoon, 
its crumbling bricks all that remained of a long-abandoned city locals said had once been a bustling trading port. This part of the world has always been rich. The Romans once called us Arabia Felix, Blessed Arabia, for our access to the sea, reliable trade routes, and lucrative frankincense groves. Locals also say that the lost city's treasury, still bursting with gold, lays hidden beneath the ruins, buried during an earthquake. It was that story I assumed had lured out the youths, until one of them loudly clucked their tongue at me in the manner of a man calling a mule to halt while we were still in the lagoon. Stop here, the boy ordered. I gave the black water surrounding us, the beach still some distance away, a dubious glance. During the day, this was a lovely place that attracted flamingos and dolphins. When the wind and tide were just right, water would burst from the rocks in geysers to the delight of children and picnicking families. But during low tide, on a calm night such as this, the breakers against the surf were mild, a steady soothing crash and glittering white spray that did little to differentiate between sea and shore. If my clients thought they could swim all the way to the barely visible beach, they were even more foolish than I thought. And I think I've been clear how foolish I considered them. We are not yet at the ruins, I pointed out. This is far enough. The pair were huddled together at the other end of my small boat, the map spread across their knees. One boy held an oil lamp for illumination, the other, a burning bunch of dried jasmine. I do not understand, one of the youths muttered. They had been arguing in hushed whispers all night. Though their accents sounded Adeni to my ear, I did not know their names. They had rather dramatically declared that in lieu of offering their names, they would pay me an additional dirham for my discretion. And since I did not actually care, the extra payment was a delightful surprise. The map says this is the spot. He gestured to the heavens above, and my heart went out to him, for what was written on that map had nothing to do with any star chart I have ever seen. You said you wished to go to the old city. I gestured toward the hill, or at least I tried to, but a thick bank of fog had rolled down from the wadi, the monsoon-swollen stream that fed the lagoon, to surround us, and neither the ruins nor the hill were visible. Instead, as I watched, the shore entirely vanished so that we appeared to be floating on an endless, mist-shrouded plain. The youths ignored me. We have said the words, the one holding the oil lamp argued. We have her payment. She should appear. And yet she has not, the other boy argued. I am telling you, we were supposed to... But whatever they were supposed to do stopped concerning me. In the space of a breath, the breeze that had been blowing in from the sea all night abruptly halted, the air turning dead and flat. I stilled, a bead of sweat chasing down my spine. I am a sailor, and there is little I watch more closely than the weather. I lifted a fraying strand from my cloak 
but no wind stirred the thread. The fog drew closer, accompanied by a smothering quiet that made thunderous every knock of water against the boat's hull. There are places in the world where such signs might herald a vicious, dangerous storm, but the typhoons that occasionally struck here typically did not manifest so unexpectedly. The water remained gentle, the tide and current unchanged, but even so, there was an ill feeling in my belly. I reached for my oars. I think we should leave. Wait! One of the young men stood, waving excitedly at the fog. Do you see that shadow above the seafoam? It was seafoam, I realized, squinting in the dark. Years of the sun's glare upon the ocean had begun to take their toll on my vision, and I struggled to see clearly at night. But the boy was correct. It wasn't only fog drifting closer. It was seafoam piled high enough to swallow my boat. As it approached, one could see a reddish-yellow hue to the substance and smell the awful aroma of rotting flesh and gutted fish. Give over her payment, oil lamp boy urged. Quickly! Forget my payment and sit back down. I ordered as the second youth reached into his robe. We are... The boy pulled free his hand, revealing a large chunk of red carnelian. And two things happened very quickly. One, I realized that was not my payment. Two, the thing whose payment it was dragged us into the fog.